two through dangers untold. Chapter 12, The False Warnings. I'm your host as always, Owen Jones, and joining me, of course, is our resident labyrinth expert, is of course the one and only Miss Emily Slade. Hello! Gets longer every week. Yeah, I just, I try and, I try and mix it up, but I can't remember what I've previously done, so I just, yeah. like, wing it, and I, I probably, it's very, it's probably quite consistent, actually, knowing me, but, um, I like to think it's different and fresh. It is. That's a nice theatrical edge to the proceedings. <laughs> Which is quite fitting tonight, because that's basically what it is all about. It's all about characters trying to out-theatrical each other. Oh my god. As... We obviously move on from uh, the greatest cinematic show. moment in cinematic history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. We, we all we all remember it was um, iconic. That's true. And now we're obviously into another of my favorite chapters, which is the False Warnings, who are essentially a group of talking stone heads whose only job is to provide false warnings, and. This scene in particular is so great because it goes against so many fantasy tropes because normally when you wander into this sort of area, should we say, it's two, a group of characters who have no idea what the situation is. Where here within the labyrinth, it's a situation where you're essentially seeing the inner workings. It's like a factory line what you're seeing because Hoggle knows exactly what's going on. He knows what they're there to do. The false warnings know what they're there to do. And the fact that some of them are quite miffed at the fact that they've not been able to give their false warnings in quite a while, um, leading to a really bizarre conversation between Hoggle and the false warnings as he just tells them to constantly shut up. And they're like, oh, come on, I haven't done it in quite a while. Yeah, they're like old Shakespearean actors. They're like, please, I haven't said it in such a long time. And he's like, okay, but don't expect a big reaction. And then he's like, oh, no, no, of course not. <clears throat> it's so good. It's really fun. I didn't realize how long this chapter was. I thought it was just the false alarms bit, which is really, really fun. Um, but there's more to it. But just to stay on the false alarms for a bit longer, like it's it's so memorable, even though it's so short. Like they're big mm. stone faces etched into the wall. And when they open their mouths, all of this like rock dust falls out to sort of indicate how long it's been since they've actually opened their mouths. And you're like, do they talk to each other or do they just sit there and do their job? Are they a, like a creature or are they like rock that's been enchanted by Jareth? Do they only come to life when people are around or do they just sit like minding their own business until someone turns up like i don't know right they clearly the have an idea think. they have this idea of a passage of time clearly so i would imagine that that their enchanted rock that's basically been put there just to mess with people mm. but because hoggles here it's sort of like it's like someone like workman being on the floor yeah it's like it's behind sort of like, the scenes it's like, come on, let's go this way. Like, okay, yeah, the trapdoor's going to open in three, two, one. There you go. There's the trapdoor. Now let's go. Let's go. And someone's like, oh, wow, how do you know that? And he's like, I work here. Like, it's my job to know that. Yeah. And it's also with this scene that we get the real sort of actual sense of Hoggle warming up to Sarah, the way that he interacts with her. He's, you know, he's got a exuberance to his step. He's Well, he's been bribed like... by plastic. So, <laughs> less there is that, but he's there, <laughs> someone who's clearly got a certain level of pride in his work. It's clearly one of his areas that he's been tasked with, you know, other than the outside of the city. It would seem that he also handles the underworkings of the city as well. Yeah, that's very true. 
Um, because he's very familiar with where he's supposed to be going, unlike, you know, which key opens the door. <laughs> the magic um, But do you look at that size of those that that size of keys? It's just like a lot of areas he's obviously responsible for. Yeah, he's like the janitor of the labyrinth. Like he knows everything. Yeah. It's a big responsibility. And it's kind of like when people say, oh, well, how can you do a sequel to Labyrinth? It's sort of like, it's this perfect movie. It's like, you look at that bag of keys, and it's like, what other doors do they open? But also, I mean, let's not, not ever do closets. a sequel to Labyrinth. Like, let's just not do that ever. It's not a thing. We don't want that. Thank you. But I hear you. A fun television series set within the world of the labyrinth perhaps drawing on from inspiration from the manga sequel series that yes we look at the other we we ignore jareth and sarah's storylines uh jareth is a faceless character that we only hear about and then yeah we we delve into the other doors and and yeah hoggle's the main character that's not not a bad idea i just like when you say labyrinth and sequel in the same sentence i get like hairs stand on edge. I'm like... <laughs> you want something like the old um, Star Wars fan movies, like Cheap Seats and Pink Five. These people were at these key moments, but they're, they're just like minor players in the great scheme of things. So you basically want like you know, some other dwarf who's been tasked with fixing things. Mm. Like the um, intern. Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> labyrinth intern. Working his way up to the bottom, is so like he just runs home to his mom. He's like, "I've got a job in the labyrinth, mom. I'm the I'm the guy who I'm the one who feeds the chickens to the troll. Well, um, someone's got to do it. Yeah, I'm going to be chief chicken handler. <laughs> I could have gone so much worse. Make sure the network. <laughs> Try and get a conversation with the king. Yeah, mom. I'll just I'll just do that. Shall I? God, Spending days choking chickens. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I just ten percent. If you're going to make that into a thing, thank you. See, we're writing it here already. <laughs> this thing writes itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I say, it's this is what I love about Labyrinth compared to like other fantasy works, and the fact that it's not afraid to pull back the curtain, so to speak. With other mm. ones, are very so protective of like how everything works and everything is just the way it is because yeah, I, it's like, fear that if you show something that's having like some sort of logical working and that it's it removes fun. the magic. Yeah, and it, it's got this like fun comedicness to it whereas like you never really see that in like Narnia, let's say. Like you never no. see a sort of behind the scenes. Narnia is very dramatic and high like high art high fantasy like very serious it takes itself very seriously does narnia even when they literally have father fucking christmas he's like some badass like red-coated warrior man who's like i defy the witch i have made my way into narnia because you ultimate monarchy exist and blah 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 i just spilled my wine everywhere um, but yeah, whereas, whereas in the labyrinth, it's like, look, these guys are fun, and they haven't said this in a while, so just like let them, and it's gonna be really cute and fun, and everyone. Sarah's just like, just, all right, 
whatever. Do you think that because it would been a handsome project that we allow it to have such freedom? Because yeah, anything sure. you watch with Henson, you just associate as being an extension of the Muppets. I mean, obviously, Labyrinth is its own thing, but the humour, the way the puppets handle it, themselves are exactly. very... The humour, the like, it's all down to the humour. The reason Labyrinth is so iconic and brilliant is because it has that through line of humour. And this is what we're seeing in, like other things that are becoming successful and popular like i hear really good things about the new suicide squad because it's got a humor that apparently the original lacked. i don't know what i'm fucking talking about i don't watch dc movies unless it's wonder woman but like i'm a fucking liar batman returns fucking slaps but um it, it you know what i mean um like it it's it's the comedy it's the humor it's that heart funny heart that runs all the way through it and that's what labyrinth has like it's and again it's because it's down to the monty python um the terry jones aspect as well like combined with the jim henson comedy and heart like that's you know the false alarms are very monty python they're very british humor um and i think that's what's so great about the labyrinth as well is that classic british humor is present throughout and we really really see it in the false alarms Something I especially love as well with the Force Alarms, when he allows the last Force Alarm to do his bit, he actually warms up. Yeah, he's like... And goes into his dramatic thing. And he's a very, he has a tonal shift. So I wondered if it was like just a bunch of like voice actors that they had. Like improvising. Which obviously makes sense. Yeah. And in fact, it's not just he like goes straight, he's just like uses the same voice. Instead, he's sort of like, he's like, nope, warm up. I'm going to compose myself for this big performance. And it's then he's fun. like... It's so fun. The conversation trails off in the background as we're moving on. Yeah, it's so clever. Like, we spot the crystal that's just come around the corner as he's like, thank you very much, because um, we've listened to his, like, performance. Um, yeah. But already, like, the action's moved on because Jennifer Connelly's like, uh-oh, and Hoggle's like, oh, no. And we see a crystal ball and we're like, fuck you. This can only mean one thing costume change now technically if we want to be super specific there's two new costumes that jareth wears in this scene because there's the disguise and then the costume he's wearing underneath the costume he's wearing underneath is one we have not seen yet it is a combination of some very nice tight gray pants which have a sort of snakeskin aesthetic to them once you get up close which oh we do in this scene and then a really nice high collared brown leather jacket over a froofy pirate shirt Mwah. great belt as well big hair it's iconic it's like his day wear it's like just just like standard classic like i'm just gonna wear this while i mooch around the labyrinth kind of wear but originally he's in his sort of like muppet disguise where he's almost literally holding a, a puppet in front of him um to to have the initial conversation very famous quotes in this little scene like um in like it's sort of forgettable because it's uh bookended by so much more iconic things uh, and and like you know everybody knows magic dance but people may not forget the false alarms chapter but it's it's so good it's like in the phantom of the opera there's a a song called twisted every way slash notes and or notes slash twisted every way and it's brilliant and it's um right before wishing you were somehow here again and christine's in her blue dress and it's just a really great piece of music it's very dramatic it's a really a good opportunity for the actors to show off their like 
skills and it's just really really fun and it's often forgotten because it's bookended by such by masquerade and wishing you were somehow here again which are huge but it's so good and it's my favorite part of the whole thing and watching this i was like my god i think this is my favorite part of the whole thing obviously besides the door um the broom cupboard door but it's just everything about this movie that I love and I'm sure other people agree where you've got Jareth in disguise and then he unveils himself and he's incredibly sexy and they've got some wordplay where they can't get Hoggle's name right and it's so funny like it's just classic comedy You've got him, like, leaning against the wall in a way that I'm like, if anyone ever does this to me in real life, I will marry them. And then you enter the world and people start doing it and you're like, oh, actually, no, this is incredibly predatory and creepy. Please stop. But in the movies, it's nice. And um, the chemistry between Connolly and Bowie come forth. His character is, is... He's in, like, fucking high drama mode where he's all, like... Oh, do tell, like, what, oh, and, like, Hoggle's like, oh, no, I was leading her back to the beginning, and Bowie immediately looks at, like, Sarah to see what her reaction is, like, what do you think of that, Sarah? Then he does the fast-forwarding of the clock, so she loses hours, she claims it's not fair, which we now know is her catchphrase, but again, almost meta, he, like, calls her out on it with the iconic line, um, you say that so often, I wonder what your basis for comparison is. And as he says that, he's like pure sex, like just pure, unadulterated, just like. Um, oh, before that, we've had a huge close up of his trousers um, where Hoggle falls to his knees and begs him not to like um, uh put him in the bog of eternal stench so again we're we're planting the bog of eternal stench we know that this is a bad place but it's the first time we hear of it um we have a very nice close-up of his groin we get to see the detail in his trousers it's great it's great it's just it's just so good and then it and then it ends with him summoning the the cleaners which is what we'll go on to talk about next chapter but it's just a lovely iconic dialogue between the trio it's really fun, it's funny, and it's, like, so sexy. And it's the first time that Jareth has come to speak to Sarah since he sort of dropped her into the labyrinth, like, face-to-face. And she is doing an excellent job. Um, Jennifer Connelly is making such good choices as an actor when he comes up to her and he is, like, so attractive and he's leaning on the wall and he's just, I just love him so much he's so attractive he's so hot and he's like how are you finding my labyrinth and like she's so good to hold her own and she makes this brilliant choice of like looking down and then coming back up and staring him in the eye and being like it's a piece of cake um and then we get hoggle's brilliant reaction of like fucking hell you shouldn't have said that and it's just it's just a really neat fun little scene that I really really enjoy and like sums up everything that's so much fun about Labyrinth I think thank you for coming to my TED talk great okay so let's just rewind a little bit <laughs> um now Joe obviously into into uh, he's introduced again uh by the skin muppet con- 
costume, as you said. Mm-hmm. And when he removes it, he gives it a twirl. So he's like, you know, a theatrical entrance. But he's the bullfighter sort of stance that he's taking. His hands are pretty much on his hips, if not physically, insanely metaphorical. The way he flails that cape around, mm-hmm. he is like commanding. He's put, or announcing himself. Um, as Jareth basically likes to do. He's a very theatrical villain. Yeah. Um, and certainly when his, his introduction, you can tell in his head, he's got it worked out exactly what he's going to be doing. All the time he's been sitting there, he's been like thinking, himself, like, okay, they're going to do home here and I'm going to do the, do that flourish thing. And then I'm going to go into the intimidation stance and like be this cocky little bastard that I am. Mm-hmm. And then instead, you get the expression, especially the um, impression, especially from Bowie's expression, because he's interrupted partly through his opening sort of monologue, where he sort of like notices um, Hoggle's bracelet, and he recognizes it as being plastic, and he's sort of like, "What are you doing? What is this cheap tacky thing? You're throwing the whole thing off here, man." And yeah, it's like he already knew and he just like bided his time to be like, what is that plastic thing around your... Like, I know that she's duped you and you're blah, blah, blah. And it's all just for the drama. Like, he is 100% here for the drama. He's like, uh, I'm sorry, I thought you took a bribe from Sarah. And he's like, what, a bribe? No, I didn't take a bribe. Uh, uh, pff, uh, no, I was going to take it back to the beginning. And then he's like, ha Sarah, what do you think about that? And she's like, you were what? And he's like, Hoggle, what have you got to say to that? And he's just like, it's just a massive drama queen and I'm here for it. But you look at that and that's really his way of regaining control of the situation. Because he was so sure Hoggle was very much under his thumb that he's not going to go against him. And yet here Sarah is, oh, sweetness and light, charming even a grumpy old Hoggle into like helping her. For the labyrinth, for the fact that he's given her this symbol of friendship between them, and it's something that he very clearly is quite fond of, because we see him like look back at it on a number of occasions, like in the film, and the fact that Bowie's performance here is just so key to the scene working. Mm-hmm. The fact that you're taking on such a journey, because before it would just be sort of like, sort of like, oh, I'm introduced, look how threatening I am. Um, look, I'm disgusted at Hoggle because you're potentially betraying me. Mm-hmm. And instead, with Bowie's, it's like this whole journey. We're getting this feeling that someone here is going for a real journey themselves of like how they're dealing with the situation. Because clearly, in his mind, everything he's like stacked the deck so much that everything's going to go according to plan. And so far, Sarah's basically been going the way that um, he thought that she would be going. And now, Obviously, this is thrown a whole spanner in the works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that he's now realised that he's got one of his own people is helping her. And we're still someone who actually knows the inner workings of the labyrinth. Yeah. And it's sort of like he... That's why he has to, like, pull out the big guns. He's like, what's Hogglebush afraid of? The bog of eternal stench. And this is why he's like, I'm going to throw you headfirst into that bog if you don't get back in line. Yeah. Um, and... It's, you see that Hoggle himself, he's not quite sure. He's like, he feels a certain amount of confidence that Sarah gives him so that he's like willing to stand up to, a, 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 to him to an extent. But at the same time, he's also still quite a bit of a coward to be seen like dropped to his knees. He's in that very sort of submissive pose where he's right beside Gareth's crotch. And it's yeah. very hard to miss because yeah, he's man. only a dwarf. 
and he's there. He's grabbing hold of his leg. He's like, "No, no, no! Don't throw me in the bog. I'll be good." And Joust like basically goes back. He sees that he's like regains the control of the situation and returns to screaming with Sarah. Hence the whole um, shaving time off because that's quite a dastardly thing to do. <laughs> um, and I, I it's their relationship is so weird. It's Who, sort of like um, Hoggle and Jareth or Jareth no, and Sarah. No, Jareth and Sarah is the fact he's just so tormenting here. Yeah, it's um yeah, it's something that I, I feel like I need to give more thought to properly at um at some point because it's it's something that a lot of people enjoyed in the sense that they would put themselves in Sarah's place and really enjoy the fact that Jareth was in love with them. Like, all you want when you're a kid is that someone to be so desperately in love with you that they'll literally rearrange time for you. Like, that's, that's like, the dream back in the 2000s, especially before we had, you know, aspirations because we were women and we weren't allowed any. And, um... But then you grow up and you read about how oh, there are allegations that David Bowie himself was very interested in younger women, like underage women. And um, it's on the DVD. I really remember watching the behind the scenes where David Bowie is like, not only is Jennifer Connelly an incredibly attractive young lady, but she's very talented. And it always stood out to me as like, that was a, that was a weird thing to say. <laughs> Like, that was a bit strange. Like, he really pushes how hot she is, and she's, like, 15 at the time, and you're like, oh, yeah. that was really weird. Um, and it's it's a whole thing. And then, of course, like, I showed this to my friends when I was older um, who had never seen it before and were very much like, he's predatory, this is creepy, you're not meant to be on his side, like, you're not meant to find him attractive. Like, he's very, very creepy, and she's very, very young. And I have a lot of problems with that coming to this as an adult. So it's really interesting how I think there's a real conversation to be had about what's taught, what's learned, what's genuine um, desire and interest, what's right, what's wrong. Yeah, it's interesting is what I'll say think- about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that as well. Obviously, this is the 80s. There is, unfortunately, I mean, there's still a lot of things that... age gaps between men and women in movies, um, but not ever so starkly, this is a child who is babysitting their stepbrother and you are an ancient immortal king. Like, yeah. um, and it's very fantasy-esque, you know, it's the idea was that, you know, Romeo and Juliet, she was 13, he was 16. Like, there was this, there was always this idea of, like, age gaps between men and women and men always having to be older and it wasn't unheard of that you would be sent off as a bride of 14 to an old, old man, which I, I think wasn't strictly true, but it's definitely become something that we believe to have been true to the point where we're kind of okay with it. I don't know. I don't really know enough about what I'm talking about <laughs> to have like okay. um, a, a, a true opinion. But I think it's interesting and warranted as a conversation with perhaps someone just... that knows what they're talking about. I wonder if I like the idea, though, that do we accept it more because Bowie isn't a human man? He's a fantastical being. As in his character, not 
what Bowie is, but I know what you <laughs> mean. Think we are then, you know, if he was like a mermaid or a dragon, would we still be chill with it? Like if, like if we think that he's the age of like King Triton, and then King yeah. Triton tried to get with a mermaid that was the same age as his daughter, like would everyone be freaked out, or would everyone be chill well, about we, it because they're mermaids? And we also have like our love interest in Lord of the Rings, which we, we randomly talked about before we come there tonight. And I mean, she's a mortal elf. She's hundreds of years old. Yeah, and you know, he's only like that because it's like. So, yeah, because uh... she doesn't look older, and I think that's the thing. Like David Bowie is clearly forty, and Jennifer Connelly is yeah. clearly like fifteen. Um, but I do hear you, and I think in fantasy it's more accepted, especially romantic fantasy, Arthurian mm. legends, that sort of thing. Um. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it's... it is more the aesthetic than, and as on top of stuff as well. And also, I think also because of the eighties, a lot of the there was a lot of this. I mean, you had John Hughes and Molly Ringwald, who apparently had a thing going on. Um, apparently, it was Molly Ringwald was on the on uh, Mark Maron's uh, WTF podcast, and she was like saying it's all like, oh yeah, if we weren't seeing people at the time, I'm sure something would have happened between us, and it's like just gone from being like oh yeah Molly Ringwald was Hughes's muse said no there was something else going on there and there's a massive age difference I mean she's a child yeah this is the thing I I really reject the use of the I I really hate when it's like muse like I hate the term muse because it is always it always just conjures up like Lolita imagery to me where it's like a muse is an underage girl bringing inspiration to a wizened old man and i know that's not where the term comes from i know it's the greek for like a like a type of angel that would bring creativity to whoever but it's always you think muse you think john hughes and molly ringwald you think you think like old man young girl uh, you think artists you know you think actresses to directors you think like it just like very rarely have I... I don't think I I can think of an example and there's bound to be them, but they're just not in the public consciousness of a young man being amused to an older woman or even just people the same age or, like, just a man being amused to a woman creator. Like, you just don't hear it in the same way. So when you think of the word muse, you just think, like, paedophilia. I don't know. Like I know what you mean. It's it's that or I think of... um... Oh, traffic! Fucking name now. Um, oh, this is so The chick was in Dust Till Dawn, and um, oh, you think it's that? I think it's Sam Hayek in uh, yeah. Dogma. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Muse. I was gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> she was a muse who uh, was muse sick and not getting credit, and then got <laughs> yeah. writer's block. <laughs> I love it. Where she's like. Um... The top ten highest grossing movies of all time, they're all me. Oh, except that one with the kid at Christmas. Ah, the home invasion. I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> Someone had to sell their soul to save them for that piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. So good. So good, because it's already been established that John Hughes is like a major influence to two of the main movies in that. Yeah, I got it. I got the reference. <laughs> 
Dogma, Dogma would be one I would love to do a chapter by chapter breakdown. There's just so much depth in that movie. Well, Brilliant. you say that. I did it recently. I did it around this time last year for a, a Kevin Smithathon. Um, yeah. And the network I was in, and I, I, rem- I fucking lived for that movie when I was a teenager. Like I watched it all of the time. And um, I watched it with my friend Flo, who'd only ever seen it like once in an RE lesson. And upon a rewatch, I was like, oh, this is, this is like laddie teenage humor. It, it was, it was confusing. I wasn't quite sure what sort of message it had. It was very fun, but it was very much like, what are you trying to say here? And like, I get what you're trying to say here, but you're just doing it in such a bizarre way. There was a whole scene that was fucking pointless and a waste of time. Like there was just a lot that wasn't as fondly remembered upon a rewatch. Oh. It was not disappointing, yeah. but eye-opening. And I was just like, oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. I, I liked it when I was fifteen because I, I, I didn't know. Still any like it. Yeah, I still like it. And there's a lot of think... fun stuff, and I remember it really, really fondly. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. I remember I, first time I watched it, my dad was like working on the computer or something, and George Carson's like giving his buddy Christ. <laughs> buddy spit. Christ, doesn't he just pop? And he was like, "What is this? This is so random." <laughs> It's like Jesus didn't come out. He come down here to give us the heebie-jeebies. He came here to give us a boost. <laughs> and this is the thing. I feel like it was possibly one of the first of its kind that not poked fun at religion, but opened up a conversation about it um, in a really fun way. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I fucking love Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in these roles. <laughs> I think they're brilliant. Um, I See, I know you're just like them. talking about it. I just want to do quote after quote. This it's so like, quotable. It's so good. It's like, don't look at me like that. People think I broke up with you or something. Or, <laughs> <laughs> I fucking miss my cartoons for this. <laughs> it was so good. And I loved Bethany as a character. And I still do. I think she's such a great character. Um, oh, yeah. It's sort of like you got that and you got Alan Rickman as the, oh, uh, the Byron. I did her monologue. I would take her monologue to auditions when I was still auditioning as an actor, you know, before the pandemic. Um, I would do her her monologue uh, that she says on the train about how, like, what God has a plan. What about my plan? Like, it's such a good monologue. Yeah. So much fun. It's a great movie. No Um, ticket. So good. (laughs) Isn't um, Jason Muse for that one? He was determined um because kevin smith was like you know we've got alan rickman and all this he's an english actor you know they invented acting it's like you can't be you can't be <laughs> dicking around the this. greeks invented acting i know but the americans think we we invented acting i'm not going to question them um and like he was like jason who's like not only memorized his own lines but like the whole script Aww. because like before like kevin smith was like having to give him prompts and as the films had gone on he got better yeah, and he was like, he was like going for the script. He's like, "What? You suddenly become Rain Man or something?" He's <laughs> so like, "Oh yeah, you said that English guy was here, and I really wanted to, to show him up." <laughs> so. It's so it's so much fun, and obviously, mm. God is a girl. Of course, God and the last one I said, in Canadian. Can you um, it? Can you receive it? God is a girl. 
whatever you say. It was great. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about this uh, scene at all? Uh, let me check my notes. Let me check my notes. What have I got down here? <laughs> New outfit, false alarms, Boeing Connolly, dick bulge, hoggle hilarious. I think I've covered everything. So, <laughs> Gareth, obviously, nothing he's quite intimidated Sarah enough when she actually goes back. It's like, huh, it's a piece of cake. And then, of course, in true villainous fashion, he says, it's like, oh, really? How about you deal with this little slice? Slice. Throws the globe into Mwah. the dark. Perfect. And then, we see the cleaner. Oh no! And then the pair of them run off. And if you've got your stereo turned up just enough, you will hear Joffrey Conley go, Come on, feed! <laughs> Love it. That concludes tonight's episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to my co-host, Emily. Thank you. I love this episode. It's really underrated, I feel. Like, I just... Not that a lot of people talk about Labyrinth around me, but, like, when they do, they don't specifically mention the scene, and I, I think they should more, basically, is what I'm saying. Awesome. Um, as always, if you want to follow us, we are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, we are on Instagram. Come and say hello to us. Click the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. Leave us a review, because it all helps rates profile the show genuinely like just like get in touch like i will have conversations about this movie until the cows come home and the cows never come home so basically the conversation never ends so hit me up but uh thank you as always for listening thank you and uh we will be back with our next chapter the cleaner the cleaners but until then thank you as always for listening and we'll be back Good night. Bye. <laughs>